Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1831, a Baptist preacher named William Miller began to garner a real significant following all across America because of his compelling teachings about the return of Christ. This guy could really, really preach. And from his home base in New England, he would draw crowds sometimes in the tens of thousands. Can you imagine? Especially that time in the 1800s, tens of thousands of people coming out of the woodwork to hear his sensational prophetic preaching. And through newspapers and publications, Miller's message reached the masses in a way that those itinerant preachers of the First and Second Great Awakenings could only dream. He managed to do it in a way that these guys would have loved to do. There was this message that swept across the nation within only a decade. It was a message known as Adventism. Teachings based on the imminent return of Christ from a particular interpretation of the Old Testament book of Daniel. And although several splinter groups emerged within the Millerite movement over the years, it wasn't enough to derail it in any significant way. At its apex, the Millerites were said to be numbered in the hundreds of thousands. William Miller had made a few calculations along the way as to when Christ's return could be. And when those predictions failed, it did little to dissuade his followers from turning their back on him. And along the way, his health started failing him. And so his interest in this subject began to really pick up. It began to really snowball. And it really gained steam at the end of the year 1843. And so he did a deep dive once again into the book of Daniel, and he began to make corrections on these miscalculations that he had, the places that he had formerly messed up concerning the return of Christ. So by the middle of 1844, he had resolved that God had undoubtedly revealed to him the exact date of Jesus' second advent. It was going to be on October 22nd, 1844. As to how he came to that calculation, time would fail us. I don't have the chart for you. I could tell you about it after the service if you're interested. When that day arrived, about 100,000 people were gathered in various locations. 100,000. They were gathered mostly on New, New England hillsides and in pastures, and they were counting down the hours. This was like New York Times Square on steroids. All right? Many of them had left their jobs, sold their homes, gotten rid of their possessions. Some had given all of their money away in eager expectation of the Lord's return. They waited all day staring aimlessly at the sky, even well into the night. And when the sun came up on the 23rd day, on the 23rd, they finally admitted to themselves and one another the heartbreaking truth. William Miller had gotten it wrong. However, rather than turn from these destructive teachings, many of the Millerites formed their own groups in an attempt to reinterpret Miller's teachings. One of those groups became the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
William Miller could have saved himself and his followers a lot of heartache and frustration if only he had read the Gospel of Matthew. Somehow, not one of his followers managed to come across this really, large, this really large section at the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus talks about his second coming. Not one of them thought to ask, Lord Jesus, what do you think about your return? Instead, they relied on the book of Daniel to tell them something that Jesus had clearly revealed in Matthew's gospel. So in today's gospel lesson... For the first Sunday of Advent, you and I have the advantage of hearing from the Lord himself. Jesus is in the middle of teaching his disciples on the side of, Mount of the Mount of Olives. And it's this really long discourse that covers all of chapters 24 and 25. They had come to him in private. They wanted to ask him what they should look for to determine that he would come again. And it was a wise move on the disciples' part, if you think about it. If you want to know when Jesus is coming back, who do you need to ask? Jesus himself. Don't ask William Miller. Don't ask the end times peddlers of God's word. Ask Jesus. He's here to tell us today. You heard it here first. The answer to that question that bugs us when are you coming back, Lord? But it might disappoint you. He says, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So if even the Son of God, during his state of humiliation and during the time of his earthly ministry, did not know the day or the hour of his return, what makes us think that we can know? That won't sell very many books, I realize. That would be a very short book, wouldn't it? To go on the Barnes & Noble spirituality self-help section. When is Jesus coming back? Oh, this looks interesting. No one knows. Done. But you might be thinking, isn't Jesus divine? Isn't he one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, equal in essence? Why would he not know something so critical? And to that, I would tell you, you've got great instincts, if that's what you're thinking. It seems that the Bible is inviting us to ask a question here. Because the very fact that the Son of God knows all things according to his divine nature, but he would place limits on his knowledge during his time on earth would suggest something to us. It would clue us in on something. It would give us an indicator. And I think it's this. We don't need to have that knowledge. God doesn't want us to know. Because if we did, it might actually be harmful to us. So we learned a few weeks ago from our series on 2 Thessalonians that an incorrect understanding of the end times and the second coming of Christ really leads to some bad fruit and it really leads to some ungodly living. Because if we knew the exact day of the Lord, how might we actually abuse that? How might we mishandle such information? So God actually withholds the stuff from us that we don't need to know, and he gives to us in the scriptures exactly what we need to know. 
Jesus tells his disciples in our text today, he tells them that his coming will be like the time when God judged the world in the days of Noah. And Noah and his family were kept, they were kept safe in the ark because they knew about that coming judgment. And Jesus then drives home his point by giving them an illustration. There are two men working in the field when Jesus comes. One is taken away in judgment, as in the flood, and one is left. One is preserved for eternal life. Two women are grinding together at the mill, doing the same things, but one is taken away in judgment, and one is left to enjoy the spoils of the kingdom, the new creation. What is Jesus getting at? Why is this important for us to know? While it's not important for us to know the exact timing of his return, It's because he wants us to learn to live by faith. He wants us to live by that deep-seated trust that he will return at any given time. He wants us to be ready because he will come at an hour when we do not expect. It will be like a thief in the night, just like the flood came for those In the Old Testament, those who were caught unaware, unaware of the coming judgment. And it's not as if Noah didn't warn them. But notice what Jesus says about these people in the Old Testament, the people who were caught unaware. He doesn't spend much time or any time at all talking about the great evils that they were caught up in during Noah's time, even though Genesis talks about that a lot. Instead, he focuses on those normal things that people do. They were happily getting along in life, doing regular things like eating, drinking, giving, and marriage. And those aren't bad things. Those are good things. But they would become deadly things because they were doing them unaware. They were asleep at the wheel. They failed to heed the warnings of the prophets and they gave themselves over to those things without any thought given of any impending judgment. So the difference between us and them, brothers and sisters, is not that we are righteous and they are not. That we are righteous in and of ourselves, I should say. Nor that we deserve to be spared from judgment that is to come at Jesus' return. This is not good guys versus bad guys. We actually deserve to be taken away to be cast out of God's presence on the last day because we've sinned against him by thought, word, and deed. The difference between us and them, brothers and sisters, is this, that we are aware of that judgment, that we are aware of his wrath, which is to be poured out on those who reject Jesus. And it terrifies us. Unlike those who were swept away by the flood, unlike those who will be taken away at the coming of Jesus, it actually terrifies us. This impending judgment rightly terrifies us such that we turn from our sins and we turn toward his promises and we take refuge in the God of our salvation, the God who delivers us from such judgment in the gospel. Jesus comes to us in his first advent to take away the punishment of sins, to live without sin in proper fear and reverence for God, 
as a man, to die a wrath-bearing death on the cross, to use his blood to wipe away our sins and our transgressions. And he rose again to give us the guarantee of a bodily resurrection at his coming. And because we have faith in those promises, we don't need to know the exact timing of his return. After all, where did that get the Millerites? What would it do to us? We'd be doing some weird stuff if we knew the exact timing of Jesus' return. Some really weird stuff. Have you ever considered that? Think about the Chew on that later as you walk away from the service. What would you be doing? Don't pretend like you'd be all pious. Like you'd be, you know, committing yourself to prayer and to mission and evangelism. No, you'd be doing some really weird stuff. It's okay to laugh about it. Because we have faith in the promises, we are content with what God wants us to know. It means we can live that everyday life of faith. It means that... That, that God uses every single moment, every life situation, and every scenario in our lives, no matter how difficult, to cultivate in us dependence and trust upon Him. That's what He's doing in your life. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, and you have questions about, we don't know all the details, but I can tell you that that is exactly what He's doing in your life. He's cultivating dependence and trust upon him in your life. So when Jesus bids us to stay awake, this is what he's talking about. He's not telling us to stare aimlessly at the sky like the Millerites. Actually, in the book of Acts chapter 1, the angel of the Lord told us not to do that. Whenever Jesus was taken up in glory, he said, Men of Judea, why do you stand staring at the sky? Do you not know that this Jesus who was taken up will come again in the same way? So in other words, stop looking at the sky with your mouth open. Do what God's given you to do, right? He's not telling us to abandon our vocations like the Millerites, nor to stop eating and drinking or even marrying. That's not what he's saying. He's telling us to do all of those things with awareness and with intentionality. That we are aware. We are awake Jesus is calling us to faithful vigilance, to staying awake in the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So my daughter asked a very good question earlier when she came forward. She said, why the new candles? That's what candles help us do. You know, it's a very powerful symbol of staying awake, of keeping watch, of being vigilant. So on the first Sunday of Advent, our vigil begins. As Jesus taught his disciples, even normal things like eating, drinking, and marrying, even though those are neutral or even good things, those have a way of alluring us to fall asleep and to eventually fall away from faith itself. So what does faithful vigilance look like? Our epistle lessons, uh, lesson from the book of Romans puts it this way. It says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to stay awake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, it means walking in your baptism where Christ came to you and where he actually covered you with his own righteousness, Galatians 3. He gave you the guarantee that you will share in his resurrection at his coming through holy baptism, Romans 6. Faithful vigilance means that you do what you're doing right now, is that you faithfully attend church. You come to that place where it is the gathering of believers under Christ's authoritative word, where he comes to us to actually keep us awake, to keep us alive in this Christian faith through the means of grace. And we live repentant lives by regularly confessing our sins, both in worship and in private whether it's to a Christian friend or to your pastor. I'm going to have more on that subject in our Advent midweek series. I encourage you to come to that. We regularly partake of the Lord's body and blood, which deliver to us the benefits of his death and his resurrection. And it's actually a foretaste of that feast that is to come whenever he returns for us. It means we live in community with one another bearing one another's burdens and encouraging one another to stay awake. I'm reminded uh, of how much I depend on my wife during holiday travels. Whenever you're doing a road trip, you know what I'm talking about. And that turkey is just sitting real heavy in your belly and you've got to go home. You've got a three and a half hour drive ahead of you. You need the person next to you to keep you awake. Boy, we do some weird stuff to stay awake too. But that's, that's what the Christian community is about. People might look at us and say, man, you guys are weird. That's right. We're doing it so that we can stay awake. That's what it's about. We take God's word into our homes. We have regular practices of devotion and prayer, teaching and instructing our children and our family. And if you're not doing that with your children and you don't know where to start, I'd love to talk to you about that. Because if you don't do it, somebody else will. And everything we do, whether eating or drinking, marrying, or doing our jobs, we do so for the glory of God. That's what it means to stay awake. That we are aware and awake that we will see his glory at his second advent. Radical stuff, right? Groundbreaking. Radical. I'm kidding, of course, but it is radical in the eyes of the world. This baptismal life that God has called you to, it is radical. That faithful vigilance that Jesus calls us to in light of his return is the ordinary Christian life. It's the life that he has made ours in baptism. It's the life that he calls us to every day as we take up our crosses and as we follow him, knowing that one day sorrow and misery of this world will not follow us into the new creation. It will be left behind. And though you and I aren't permitted to know the exact time that Jesus comes, Jesus promises us a swift and unexpected return. You and I church. Do not have to fear that we will be taken away. 
But as we've been kept safe in the ark of the Holy Christian Church, Jesus will come and he will make his home with us forever. We stay awake because of the joy that will be ours and those who long for his return when he comes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.